Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. I have such a treat for you today. You are going to meet an earth angel posing as a death doula. Her name happens to be Suzanne O'Brien. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, what a delight. I've been excited to talk with you. I have pages of questions for you, my girl. But everybody, before we do that, let me give you a little bit of background on Suzanne. Suzanne O'Brien RN is a holistic wellness nurse, best-selling author and international speaker. Suzanne's best known for her being the founder of Doula Givers International, creating holistic trainings, workshops, and pioneering the end-of-life doula movement. Suzanne's work focuses on helping families embrace the natural, sacred experience of death. So, like I said, you're an earth angel posing as a, as a nurse and a and a um, death doula. So God bless you for the work you're doing. You guys are all going to understand what I'm talking about here if when we uh, get into this in more depth. You say that death is a human experience, not a medical experience. Why do you say that? Because over the last hundred years, we've turned it over to the medical world and made it a medical experience. And guess what happens in those circumstances? It is a thousand times more painful and complicated and just does not go well. So there's a couple of things we're going to talk about here, what we really call, what I call the perfect storm that brought us to a place in our existence where we've totally removed death and end of life as our awareness, education, the teachings that it can provide us about how to live from how we live in this world. And to me, that directly relates to the chaos that we see going on in our world today because death, ironically enough, is one of our greatest teachers about how to live. Oh, I agree with that. And I've also read that death is the number one fear of humans. Why is that, do you think? Because we've removed it. We've removed the teachings. We actually, you know, 100 years ago, maybe 120 a grandmother, we used to die at home. So our lifespan was 46 years old. Now it's 80, 81. Also within that last hundred years, we've taught our doctors, we've made medical advances and we've taught our doctors how to keep people alive. We can do that, but keeping people alive and living are two very different things. So the lifespan has grown. We also have our elders live different places. We don't really see them anymore. We don't have them living in our homes and see that decline and then that end of life. We might get a phone call that they died or they're at the hospital. So there's a lot of mystery that surrounds the end of life. And when things are unknown, there's usually sometimes there's a fear attached to it. However, if our medical beautiful medical professionals, which our doctors are wonderful at what they do. They're all heroes. 
But if they're telling us when we're in that space to run the other way from death, which we've lost our battle, you have to fight. This is what we're going to do to keep you going. If we're given that direction, there's there's a sense of, well, this must be terrible what's going to happen if I have an end of life. So it's almost just this perfect storm that developed um, and this incredible fear now is associated with death. And of course, we see it portrayed in movies and different things. And that's really not the truth of death usually. Um, and then the other thing that's really happened is I think the last generation was trying to what you call protect children. And so they weren't allowing them to be part of the natural process that death is. So lots of times they would not tell them that somebody was sick or dying or they would tell them things like they're sleeping or they're, you know, they're going on vacation. I have many people who've told me this. And so they create this traumatic relationship and this fear with death, which really came from that first initial unfortunate association with it. So we've got to bring it back in its natural, sacred, beautiful um, way that it is and can be. My friend, Dr. Chris Kerr, who's a hospice director in Buffalo, they handle about 1,500 patients a day, both in home and in, a, in an inpatient facility. And he says end-of-life care in our day and age is the assembly line of the absurd. And I thought, wow, what a great way to put it. I have a dear friend right now whose mother's 91. She's 98 pounds. She has a tumor in her lungs. She's dying, but they've got her going through like 45 treatments of radiation. She's got C. diff. She's on multiple antibiotics. It's just craziness. And this woman's a nurse. And she's bought into all of it, but it's just craziness. You just think, really, you want to add to the suffering of somebody who's that old? And and my friend said when they were at the oncologist, she said, and, and oncologists are wonderful and they help a lot of people. But her comment really resonated with me, Suzanne, because she said, this is my friend, the daughter, said she felt like she was at a used car lot. She said it was like, rush, rush, rush. We got to sign you up for this. We got to do that. We got to do this. You know, you need to sign this today. You can back out if you want later down the road. But she said the pressure to get in line with all of these treatment modalities for this woman who's clearly dying on her own to do was just craziness. And I know you've heard endless stories about that. I've not only heard endless stories, I've been there. So my background is not only a hospice nurse, but I was also an oncology nurse. And as the universe has no accidents, there's a reason why I was in mainstream medical and both of those platforms so I could really see what happens, what goes on, and where we could come up with solutions so people are not what I call just on that medical treadmill. Because when we talk about losing our battle, if, if death is a battle that we're going to fight and, and either win or lose, we're eventually going to lose it. It's not a battle. Yet we've set up this fighting, even for somebody in their 90s, when we know that they will not be able to. And so what's happening in that runway up into that end of life? What is their quality of life? How are they doing with that? Because treatments can be extremely difficult to endure. 
And so is that is that what that person really wanted? Is that the best thing? Is that the best choice here? And it's their choice to make, not ours. Well, and I think there's a generation of people, certainly my grandparents and my parents, that just do what the doctor says. They don't they don't question it. They don't go do their own research. They just say, okay, well, that's what that's what I'm being told to do and that's what I need to do. Whereas I think your generation, my our generation together and and those that are coming after us, we are way more savvy about, mm, I don't know how that feels. Let me do some research on that before I agree with it. Yeah, I agree with that. My father's a doctor and when I was going through my nursing school and I would come up and I'd talk to him about all these things and he said, well, he goes, it's the practice of medicine. I'm like, I don't like that. That does not make me feel comfortable. And he's, but he's really true. And people have to remember that doctors are human beings. And you also have to remember that when we don't choose for ourselves, when we don't do the homework and due diligence to think about what quality of life is, what choices I have for when I get there, which inevitably we will get there one day, having a, a, a blueprint about it, we allow somebody else to make the choices for us. And in and there lies, for me, the giving away your power and giving away to things you probably will not want. Um, and a lot of times we can't choose that because we're in it. It's too much. Our families are like, we haven't, if we're facing it, there's a lot of fear that comes up for everyone and we don't make good choices when we're in a fearful place. Oh, absolutely. You lose your sense of clarity because you're in fight or flight. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an elder care crisis? Is it primarily in the U.S. or is it global? Global. So this is what I found and it's a very important role that our institute plays, our platform plays. And I think that one of the things is in 2012, as a hospice nurse, I went to volunteer in Zimbabwe, Africa with hospice and it was such a life changing trip. But what they were doing is the hospice team was um, taking a neighbor and having them sit with the neighbor in the next hut that was dying and, and hold that space like a birthing doula. And that's really what gave me that concept. But the power of the presence and the awareness that we're aging, the aging population is affecting people all over the world. And so when I put our family caregiver doula training to teach people how to care for somebody ahead of time, ideally, people came from every different place in the world. So we have an elder care crisis, not just here, but you know that Western medicine is, is getting pretty much in every place in the world, and that's extending life. And so what happens with, when we extend life, inevitably we're gonna have physical ailments, we're gonna have cognition ailments, we're gonna have financial issues, like we're not prepared. We've never seen, and this really, really worries me on many levels, we've never seen in history an aging population like the one we have now, and we are not nearly set up for them. So the first thing I think we have to do is bring back the awareness that this is end of life is not a medical issue. It's a holistic one. But we also have to say from a practical standpoint, what do we have to support people as they age with quality, with quality, um, you know, communities and how do we support families to do this? And maybe possibly, Julie, bringing back awareness of the family unit once again, where maybe aging parents are part of that 
unit and cared for collectively by the people in the family that can, because that might be not only the most viable option, but also really a beautiful option. And I know it's not an easy thing. I'm not trying to say that it is, but I'm also saying maybe we lost our way in what we've been doing. And it's time to just, with no judgment, uh, bring that back. Well, Barbara Carnes, and I know you know who she is. She's one of the pioneers of the whole hospice movement. She's been on the show and she says that we know just intuitively as humans, we know how to be born and we know how to die. Absolutely. And and she ta- we talked about being in the home. And I work with a lot of families who have a dying loved one because I can scan them energetically. I can see in my mind's eye their deceased family members around them, their deceased pets, which all of this has been corroborated with university-based research. My friend Chris Carr says 90% of patients see their deceased loved ones as they're approaching the end of their lives. And the interesting thing about it, the one common denominator I hear is that people want to die at home. They don't want to be in a hospital. They don't want to be in a nursing home. And it's we've been trained, I think, to your point, to believe that that's where is, is the best place for them to be at the end of life, where they can have that kind of care. So how how did we get there? I mean, I, I know you mentioned earlier that it, it's about the, the medical industry. And look, I'm an inventor of surgical devices sold throughout the world. I, for 30 years, was in that world like you, wow. and you still are. But I, I think it's so interesting to me how we look at more so-called primitive societies. They have this down and we don't. Yeah, so it's that, such a good point. Um, again, when I was in the hospital in medical surgery, in, in the medical surgical unit, so not, not end of life, I would note that there were so many elderly coming into the hospital and no one would come to see them. And again, this is not a judgment call. I'm just saying that they're, I would notice that they would be in there all by themselves. Um, some of them would die. And myself as the nurse, I had very little time to spend with them. I was pushing meds and doing, it was terrible. I just felt lost and so sad. And then I, I, I had the feeling, go to hospice, just go to hospice. And I had no end of life experience, but I followed that knowing, as you said, and it was the best thing I ever did. And I thought for sure that it would be better. I knew we weren't talking as a society about death. I knew we weren't really addressing it in the hospital, but I knew in hospice it would be different because that's the end of life. And it wasn't. And it wasn't. People were coming on with a few days left. I would come to make visits and people would say, don't tell them you're for hot from hospice. It was nuts. And I thought to myself, we've been dying for thousands of years. We know how to do this. What happened? What happened? And really, again, it goes back to that perfect storm. It goes back to, you know, life expectancy, you know, before people and that's where we had home wakes and people died at home. They were viewed at home. They had their wakes at home and sometimes they were buried in the backyard. I mean, that was a home funeral. Graham, this is a skill that a grandmother used to teach a grandchild. Children were around the experience. And because we've learned how to extend life, we removed that experience and all of a sudden, we're being, again, let's go back to that oncology appointment. We're going into a doctor that's saying, do this and sign this and let's go here and do it. Everything is waving you to keep it going. And so 
this fear and this craziness developed around death and the fact that we say he lost his battle with cancer is such a tragic thing. And for a doctor to say, I'm so sorry, there's no more I can do for you is such a terrible phrase because when somebody is at that place in their journey, which we're all going to get to, there is so much that a doctor can do. In fact, tight symptom management, not only that, but just being present and holding the space, not only for that person, but for their family as well, in my opinion, is one of the most important things that doctors do. Yet we don't have any of that in the teachings and things. So we really have to dial this back in awareness. I think doctors are really uncomfortable with the whole subject of death. And my experience just with family members at the end of life, a couple where hospice were involved and then one where hospice wasn't, I was the one who was the advocate for the patient and would call in the doctors and say, look, you got to level with the family because this is nuts. I mean, you know, this person's dying. You know that if they lived, they're not going to want to be around. And so just let's just level with the family. You're giving them false hope. And the only reason I had the capability to do that was because I'd been in the medical industry for wow. 30 years or at that point, you know, decades. And I'd been dealing with surgeons, which is the top of the food chain. So I wasn't intimidated by them, but it's it blew my mind how they just kept wanting to do more tests and let's do a surgery. And this person's in a coma. Yes. They're not probably, if they come out of it, they're not going to have any quality of life, even if they come out of it. Yeah. Really? Is this just a money grab? What are you doing? So Julie, I think there's a couple of things there because again, I have been in oncology and there were some amazing doctors there and you're right. They do some just incredible work. Um, but there's that fine line. And I remember watching a doctor walk down the hallway when his 99-year-old patient finally died because she had, you know, been with cancer for a long time and his head was down like he failed. And we've literally taught our doctors. And remember, they go through medical school really intense with blinders on for years. And they are taught how to keep people alive. And right. nothing about end of life. And so there's two factors here. Not only are they taught that if somebody dies, they failed and to keep them alive, but the amount of time that we do not have as medical providers to open up that end of life conversation for the first time when the family has been, you know, not having the awareness, not planning for it. We don't even give doctors the tools to do it. And we really don't give them the time to do it because that's not just a 10 minute conversation. It really can open up a whole bunch of other things. So I think we have to start all the way back here. You and I, not as people on this podcast, but as people need to think about doing my advanced directives and my choices and sharing with my family what I'd want or not want and with my medical doctor before I get there so that when it is, it's not this craziness that it is now. So you're right. And the other thing about doctors, when they dance around, when they don't talk directly, People will grab onto anything other than what is the reality. So if they're like, you know, okay, they, they think you know what they're saying, they're trapped and they don't say it, that person's going to grab onto the one little thing that you said that gives them hope that they're not dying. And that is unfair because we know that that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. To your point about taking kids to funerals and to wakes and things like that, 
when I was little growing up in Ohio, there's a funeral home, Egan Ryan in Columbus, Ohio, where five generations of my family have been buried out of. And they have a showroom of caskets up on their second level. And so we'd be there for somebody's wake. And I can remember being like six, seven, eight. And we'd go upstairs and we'd have a ball. I love it. In the in the casket room. Yeah. And so we weren't as afraid as kids who aren't exposed to any of that. And in and in this day and age, most people are cremated, I know. So the casket whole thing, I think, just creeps people out because they haven't necessarily been aware of it and they've just seen it in the movies and elsewhere. We'll get to that yeah. later on in, in the questions as far as what the different different ways to uh, do this. And being, I want to talk about too, the home wigs. My grandfather died in 1938 when my mom was 12 and he was waked in his mother's home. And when I heard that, I thought, what? <laughs> and But that was the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Not only is it the norm, I'm doing a whole bunch of research on all of this and, and obviously have been, this is my, my work, but there is such a healthy component to caring for your loved one after they've died, to giving that, giving that concrete acceptance in you that that person is not alive anymore. But I think, Julie, what happens for me with my families is I think that they feel this profound sense of this person still existing almost even stronger than when they were in the body as they're loving them that gives them something that they are like wait they're still they're still existing and that's critically important so they show that slowing down that time when the person dies but also even just taking a few hours to bathe them or to dress them or even if just to sit quietly and and be present with that body directly relates to the healthy way that we grieve and and have bereavement, which again is something that people aren't doing. We're missing all of the wisdom and the pearls that this this death experience gives us about life. So it's very important to talk about these things and to bring them back. And I just want to go back to children and you. I love that image of you all in the with the caskets. You know, our pets die. Children are and children are they know they're so wise. So to prevent them from being part of this or age appropriately asking questions is one of the biggest disservices we could ever do for these children because it sets them up with this incredibly dysfunctional relationship that is going to be very challenging for them um, in their whole life associated with end of life. Well, I wrote a series of children's books called Angel Messages, Angel Messages for Kids, for Dogs, for Cats, and for Truth. And they're picture books and they're darling, if I say so myself. And one of them is about what happens when you lose a loved one. And I, I was prompted to do that by so many moms throughout the years who've said, how do I explain to my child what happens when grandma dies and we're at the funeral home for the visitation? We say, well, honey, grandma's in heaven. And the child's saying, no, she's not. She's asleep in that box up there in the front of the room. And how do we explain that? And how do we explain that grandma's spirit's coming to visit little Johnny in his room at night and he can see her and he can talk to her? And how do we explain that that what happens when their dog dies or their cat dies. And there's lots of other fun stuff in there about, you know, cats climb trees and dogs will do tricks for treats and things like that. But it's 
it's intended to get that message in there sure. to give them. I've had so many parents ask me, primarily mothers, to come up with something so that it'll give them a foundation to explain this to their their small children, especially. But I but I think it pertains to children that are maybe middle school, even up to that age too, and and, and the adults that are reading these children's books, yeah, as well to their children. It helps them understand. Absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that children are always taking their cues from us. And so when they see us as adults being, you know, out of sorts with a death, they are like, oh, that must be something very dangerous happening here. So we really need to change the culture around everything around end of life, bring it back into the sacred, beautiful experience, the natural experience. And then also, what does it teach us about how to live right now? You know, being having gratitude, living in the moment, being of service, you know, just having compassion and seeing one another in the day. Um, because that when that day comes, we want to be able to have that sense of not having heavy regrets and all of all of those things that go along right now with end of life, unfortunately. I agree. You say that people at the end of their lives can experience a newfound spirituality. Really? What do you mean by that? Oh. Uh, so when I started working with end of life, it taught me everything about life. It changed my life. And what would happen was, um, and I've been honored to be and privileged to be with over a thousand people at the end of life all over the world. So what was really the very first thing that was really impactful for me is what people would say as they got closer to the actual time of their death, they would start saying the same things. And so after, you know, long time being with different people and studying a little bit about physics and whatnot, there is a certain time in that experience. And so we're, we're holistic beings. We're, we're physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, all of us right now. As that physical body is diminishing, that spiritual body is growing. And there's one point in the journey that they have one foot in this world, one foot in the next. And so they get what I call their spiritual eyes, their spiritual wisdom. And all of a sudden they would wake up from a nap and say, I get it now. I know why all that happened. And they can look back on situations in their life. And now it all makes sense what that experience was trying to teach them, allow them to the lesson it was allowed to everything fit. And they look at everything with a different lens of perspective on that lens is unconditional love. And that lens is no judgment. And that lens is awe. And so as they get closer to the time and people who have lived a certain set religion, and this is what was really uh, poignant, is that people who lived, you know, certain religions, certain ways, as they got closer to the end of life, it turned into this spiritual, this, this more of a spiritual oneness. And when they're saying the same things, we need to pay attention to that. And they will also say what they want to share with other people about everything's meant for a reason, that there is no judgment, that it's all about unconditional love, that there is no death, that there is no death. And then, of course, talking about their beautiful loved ones who are right there with them or angels or, you know, the animals. And it makes sense if the physical frequency, the frequency, even though we can't see it, some of us can, you can, um, you have to, number one, let families know from a practical standpoint that if they're saying these things, they're getting ready to have that end of life soon. So it helps really ground them. But also, what is the bigger picture here? I mean, I have a, I have 
a thread that has thousands of comments from families about their mother seeing their grandfather and talking in different languages, family after family after family. I'm going to put that all in a book because if we can collectively have all that in one place, well, we just opened up a whole nother way to look at what's number one fear in the world today with a, with a whole new lens on. And that lens is pretty miraculous. My parish priest, who I love, our pastor of our parish, he, during one of his sermons one time, Suzanne said, you know, people are just so afraid at the end of life because they don't know if they're going to fly or they're going to fry. And I thought, you are so on target with that. And and I find that that's the case too. And interestingly enough, there's a, a um, oh, exercise that I do with people at the end of life when I'm working with them and their families. And I call it the walk to heaven. And everybody that takes my classes learns how to do this too. And it's kind of like a dress rehearsal of what's going to happen at the end. And and so we get to heaven and they see all their deceased loved ones. They see all their pets. They see their friends, all of that. And without fail, doing this with over a thousand people, they people who are afraid to die, they usually go within a day or two. And it's really interesting to walk through that with them. It totally erases the fear. And to your point earlier, sometimes it's the last person you expect. You know, it could be like a a nun or a pastor or a rabbi or somebody or or somebody who seems to be super religious in this lifetime. And they are so afraid that they're going to go burn for eternity. And so the walk to heaven really helps allay those fears with them. And we do and we do it energetically. We do it yeah. spiritually. Yeah. You know, I do it with their spirit. Yeah. Even if they're it they're not able to communicate at all, even if they're they're just at that end stage. And without fail, usually within 48 hours, they will go ahead and go on to heaven. I love that, Julie, because one of the things that is a big part of my platform is is the intention to help people reduce the fear of death because that fear is palpable and it makes us have really bad choices. And also it's just sad to see somebody so petrified, right? So I I love that you talked about religions because there have been, you know, different religions that have really positioned um, this, you know, what is your your priest say flyer flyer fry right and 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 just on the off chance that you're going to have the latter i mean just how petrifying even if that's in the subconscious so for me when you were sharing this exercise which i love is allowing people to really go into their heart to their beat part and experience that and they know we know then then when we're tapped into that energy we know this love we can feel this unconditional love And the other thing that is really magnificent is the studies now of near-death experiences of, well, for me, for being with the people at the end of life, what they say, and also for the studies now that are being used with psychedelics at the end of life, breaking open the being part of us at consciousness. They're all saying the same thing. There is no death. It's unconditional love that everything here was about learning a lesson. I mean, this is so important. This can change our world. Yeah, I agree. Well, and to your point earlier too, Suzanne, about how it changes how we live our lives. For me, knowing this thing and talking with tens of thousands of spirits 
communicating with their just you know with a client's deceased loved one and they all say that they all they all have the same thing that they say to your point exactly but the other thing for me is i think okay if the worst thing that can happen is i die and i'm carried to heaven by angels and i'm with my deceased loved ones and friends and pets and all of that if that's the worst thing that can happen to me okay and it makes me less fearful in doing things as I'm alive. And I find that others say that as well, that when we can maybe not remove the fear of death, but at least allay some of the fear or reduce some of the fear, my goodness, what does that open up for them in their lives? Absolutely everything. I mean, to me, I, and I'll, if I may, I just want to use my example. So when I trusted this knowing to go to hospice and it made no sense. So I kept hearing go to hospice and I knew, you know, I'd gone through nursing school and I was, I was disappointed in, in mainstream medical, just like what we kind of talked about. And I thought this can't be it, you know, this just, there has to be. And when I thought about, and I heard this voice say, go to hospice, there was a feeling, there was a knowing, there was this expansive feeling of love and it made no analytical sense. So if I had put on a piece of paper where people tell you to do that, make a column of pros and cons, I would be t going to a job with less benefits, more hours, less pay, by the way, with no end of life experience. It made no sense. But I said, I'm just going to follow this. I just am going to see what this is because every time I think about it, there's a feeling I haven't felt before. The very first day that I went out to see hospice patients, I knew it was in the exact place I was supposed to be in in my life. And it was like a piece of puzzle fitting. And that day I said, I am never making another decision other than what do I feel and know, not what do I think. And to your, to your, um, what you just shared is that working in that space has opened up my life in levels and ways of magnificence and the most extraordinary loving journey because of death, because of working in that space, because of connecting with the being part of us, not the human. So we're human beings and letting that be what guides me, but knowing that it's about love, that this, this existence, this consciousness never ends. It evolves. And that puts a whole new lease on everything. And that every day there's a, it's like a little lifetime to connect, to give love, to be, to be present, to be grateful. Death teaches us everything. Oh, I agree. Speaking of that energy, when the body dies, what's been your experience in working with your patients throughout the world and their families? Do you feel something in the room? Do you sense something? Can you see in your mind's eye things? What's been your experience? And are there common denominators? You mentioned that there, there are commonalities that people say at the end of the life, but are there common denominators at, at anybody's death, regardless of where it is, what their culture is, all of those different variables? Yeah. So I love that. I think that death is one of the most beautiful and profound experiences that we have. I think it's very similar to the awe of a, a life coming into this world, but obviously very different. What happens at the end of life for me is that there is, again, you're, you're, it's like you're across the veil. So you as a, and it's such an honor and privilege to be in this space because you're able to experience this frequency, 
this high energetic, unconditional, loving frequency that removes time. So it's so interesting because when I'm in end of life, the, the day and the time completely disappear. Like I, I have to reorient myself when I step out, where are we? Like what's going on? So the clock time disappears as we know it, but there's this profound loving energy. And for me, if we can hold people, and that's why doulas are so intricate and in getting people the the knowledge of how to care for their loved one. Because earlier you said nine out of 10 people want to be cared for at home. That's what started my whole journey of doula givers is because if people want to be at home, how can they be? We need to support families to know how to do that because it falls on the family to care care for them at home. Well, they don't know the first thing about end of life and they're petrified. That's That doesn't work. So that space of end of life, if we can get it where it's somewhat stable and grounded and help the families and the more time we have to do that, the better. The most loving energy in the presence, the profound feeling that's there. Um, and then I had somebody who just wrote in and it was so good. She said that their loved one, their mother died and had a smile on her face. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so not only do you, and they said she looked so beautiful. So not only do we have that, but it's really for me that feeling now, there were times, um, one time I was taking care of a, a man and he was at the end of life and I was helping one of the uh, family members turn and position him and change him. And I saw his body, just his his soul just leave. And he was still technically breathing, but he was getting, it was on the, so I, I allowed the family, I said, whoa, what was that? Okay, so there, there he went and his body was taking the last air going in and out. What was beautiful about that is I was able to, call in the family and say, it's time, tell him you love him, sit with them. So they were able to feel that they were part of that moment. Um, so it's happened in many, many different ways. And, um, but it's always that feeling, that energetic feeling. And it's always that time as you and I know it doesn't exist in that space. Right. And obviously you've been led into this space. And I think we're all led. We all have thoughts of, oh, I need to go in and sit with grandma because the end is near. And we think, oh, if I just do this and this and this, I mean, she'll be okay and I'll go in. No, follow that first thought that comes into your head. That is guidance from spirit. Go sit with grandma and and follow where you're led. And that's how we're led is with thoughts. You were led to look in a hospice and oh my goodness, look what you've created for the world and look how you've helped people around the globe. That's no easy feat. And the fact that you had the golden ovary courage, you know, guys have brass balls, girls have golden ovaries. You had the golden ovary courage to follow that even when it didn't make logical sense. Kudos to you. Well, I really, I want to thank you. That's very kind. But I also want to really have uh, people hear what you just said about following your intuition because your heart, because it will always lead you where you're supposed to be going. And ironically enough, again, choosing to follow that to hospice, the, the minute I said, that's how this works. Like I knew instantly that that's how life works. Not just end of life. I want people to know that you have two directionals. You have your heart and your higher wisdom, right? Your being part. And you have this analytical, your internal Google, which is going to be determined from all of your life experiences and all of that. And 
it can override your heart if you allow it. You can reason things out. You have to be very, very clear on knowing that there's the two and that when your heart is guiding you, it is always going to want the highest good for you, your path, your purpose. And to follow that opens up the the magnificence of this life's journey. But it takes courage to do that, like you said, because it's not going to make sense always. It usually doesn't. But that's that's the key is just to trust in that and take that step. And then all this magic happens. And I'll tell you, go for it. Go for it in life because we're all here for a reason and a purpose. And it's to find that is key. Amen. Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com and use Julie Ryan at checkout and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. From a physical standpoint, what are the three phases everybody goes through at the end of life? So for me, as that nurse who's worked in this for a very long time, there are three distinct phases of end of life. First is the shock phase. And think about it. If somebody gets a terminal diagnosis, oftentimes there's an overwhelming feeling of shock, not just for that person, but for the family as well. So you have to remember that this end of life touches everyone. Does it matter what you were gonna do on Wednesday next week? Probably not. If somebody tells you literally that you have a, a time limit left on your life, it's usually this shutdown, coupled with, we don't even allow death to enter into our discussion and our awareness, now we're being told. So there's usually this shock presentation and then what happens with that as a practitioner, whether it's a doula, family member, or whatever you want to do to assist somebody at the end of life, you really have to say, are there acute issues? Are there immediate needs? Is this person in pain? Like what's happening that we can try and create quality of life and comfort? Because that's directly going to help um, that person to move through this end of life. If you have a lot of pain and all that, you're just going to be in this terrible place. So shock phases first. And then I tell families, look for those acute issues, look for immediate needs, look for safety issues. What is happening there? Once we can get things stable, hopefully somebody can move into what I call a stabilization phase. So we've had people, tight symptom management, which is something that's not very common in our world in the medicine today. And I'll tell you why. You need time to manage symptoms, to assess what's going on, to reevaluate. Right now, as medical professionals, we're running in and out of patients' rooms and visits we don't know what's really happening. When we get tight symptom management, quality of that person's life, I've gotten people higher quality of life than they've been in 30 years because of tight symptom management. And when something's stable, even though they're end of life still, conversations can be had. Goodbyes can be said. 
this is that this is the place where the magic really happens. And then the last phase is what I call the transition phase. And where that if you think about that birthing of a baby into the world, the same thing for the transition phase going out can be painful, it can be quick, it can be scary, and that person's leaving. So those are three distinct phases at end of life. And then it's important for us to know how we show up with what interventions in each phase. I agree. Do you encourage your patients and families to discuss their wishes, burial, cremation, remembrance, you know, all that kind of stuff after they've been diagnosed before, before, during, and after? What, what's, is there an optimal time and what is, what is your suggestion for those of us with elderly family members and loved ones? What, when to discuss this? Today, now, do not wait. You know why? Because what I think is that options are so empowering and there are so many options and we need to think about them. So we need to think about what what does this mean? What does a home wake mean? What does a water cremation mean? What's happening? But I have choices. And then decide what's right for me without being faced with a terminal illness or being right in it because this takes time. So the, t- the ideal time is to do it way before we ever get there. And I'll tell you what happens subconsciously, Julie, is when we know, even if we're not consciously thinking about it, when I've done my advanced directive and done my work and know that one day the journey will not be the same as it is today, I live each day very differently with a different level of gratitude. That just happens. And that is such a gift. So it's important to have it today. Unfortunately, right now, we don't have a lot of that. We have a lot of it at the end. And so what I'll do with families is say, um, ideally, we want to know what the person wants, right? Because this is their journey. So the only thing I don't negotiate on is safety because I want to keep you safe. But everything else, this is about you. If they are not in a place where they want to talk about it, then talk with the family member. Give them choices to make. I literally just got my parents to share with me, like last week, that they both wanted a natural burial. And it was like, it took me five years to get them to really concretely give me that direct wish because my mother really is fearful of end of life. She was brought up very strict Catholic. She has her her parents died young. You know, it comes with all of the luggage. And I also have to meet her where she is as much as it's important. I, I don't want to push her too hard. They're all healthy. Thank goodness. But this is so important for them to choose what they want and for me to make sure that they get that. So the time to do it is before, before if possible. Yep. I agree. You mentioned home wakes earlier. And in my class, I've taught people all over the world for a few years how to do all this stuff that I do, Suzanne. And we had one gal who had brain cancer and it had metastasized all over her body. And for about four or five years, she just suffered a crazy, crazy amounts of pain and illness and all that stuff. And she finally got to the point, her name was Lisa, and she finally got to the point where she said, enough already. I just, I don't want to do this. The quality of life is terrible. And so she decided to take the end of life pill, which I understand is 
and help me with this. I think I heard or I read that it's legal in 11 states here in the U.S. and it's legal in other countries. I think of Dr. Kevorkian, God bless him, and you know what he was doing to help people at the end of life a few times ago. So I want to talk about that, but also about Lisa. We graduates of my class, there was there were dozens of us that got together the day before she took the end of life pill. And we had a live wake for her. Yep. And she was there. Yep. And she was on the Zoom. We were all on Zoom. It lasted a couple of hours. It was the most touching, beautiful. And I thought, this makes so much sense to let people know how you feel about them and what you think about them when they're still coherent, number one. Certainly their spirits are there and they're hearing it. But what a gift, yeah. not only to her, yeah. but to all of us. And a fun aside was she, one of the gals who's a graduate does EVP, electronic voice phenomenon. And so she said, every, several people said to her, let us know when you get to heaven. So this other gal who does the EVP thing, a couple of hours after we got word that she had passed, she had taken the pills, she, you know, all of that. And so she did an EVP and it is absolutely Lisa's voice saying, I made it. It's amazing. And she was laughing. I have goosebumps just telling you this story. So the, the other thing about doing it when somebody's alive is we can all get together and honor that person. But even after somebody's passed, I think it's so important for us to support the family when my grandmother died, when my Mima died in 2002, one of my brother's best friends, who I'd known since high school, said to me, this was the first big death that I had experienced with somebody really close to me. And he said, you will appreciate the people who make the time to come comfort you and support you during this visitation and funeral and all of that time. And he said, you will make the effort to do it for others. And boy, were those wide were wise words. I'll get on a plane and fly wherever if someone I love has lost a loved one who's important to them. So that's several topics. The first thing about the, you know, the death with dignity pill, I think they call it. I want you to address that. And then the wakes and then supporting the family. Okay, so let's go with the medical aid in dying um, for the first one. So um, this is very important because this is a very hot topic. It's very, it's political. It's very hot out there. People want, and I think it comes from, again, the fear of death and wanting to take ownership and control of it back. However, education is everything, right? And so they're right about wanting to take our end of lives back into our hands as far as it being, again, a human experience. But it's not black and white. So it's not just a pill or no pill. Or I, I have to take that because for me, I have a checklist where what people need to know about choosing medical aid in dying, the pros and the cons, again, making sure it's right for them. Brain cancer is one of the very challenging disease processes. It has just, I think about it, it affects the brain, which you check affects all of the body. So management of that comfort level can be very challenging. So I understand that medically dying might be one of the choices that comes into that, that area. But I also want to say that most people don't really understand what hospice does or doesn't do. And there's something that's called palliative sedation that has been or terminal sedation that has been around for 30 plus years since hospice began. And when somebody's symptoms or pain 
are at a level that is high and requires more medication to um, create a comfort level, but will put them in a deep sleep coma, that's available. That's available today at any day. The key is that families don't really know how to do the first thing with the comfort kit and everything's so disjointed, but it's available. So you don't have to necessarily have a pill. You don't have to live in a state where it's legal or not. This comfort level is available to you. The key is that we don't have good education for family caregivers to know that and to know how to use that and to know how to alert the hospice team that you think something's changing with your loved one. So, you know, again, we just don't have the time for hospice workers. I think they said Medicare said on the average, they're there 30 minutes a day. End of life is 24-7. Families need much more education and support, but it is available. So I'm not saying, no, it's not a good option for people, but I want people to know there's lots of options and also that they need to make sure they are educated in it before they just grab onto it. Yeah. Well, I think there's a questionnaire, isn't there, that the doctor has to, they have to sign and there's, they got to have counseling and stuff like that. It's been my understanding. Those boxes, you're right, Julie. There's those boxes that need to be checked, meaning that you have to be of sound mind, that you have to qualify that you're over 18 and that you um, have a terminal diagnosis. But for me, at the end of life, there's another checklist. There's an emotional check. Have I said goodbye? Have I put things in order? You know, there, there's there's a lot more that goes on for that peaceful end of life before we actually take that Right. I got a couple more general questions and then I really want to dive deep on the doula part of the sure. equation. And also just the funerals and the lot living weights. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that and what the options are. Yeah. So death is having a rebirth. I love to say it that way. Death is having a rebirth and all these options. So it's called funerals. So funerals, but fun that people have them with when they're there or the living weight. And, and like you said, it's such an amazing, come on guys. We're having a party. I'm at the party. People are saying beautiful stories and shares and I get to hear it and be part of this. It's amazing. So yes, that is. And then there's a there's a movement for people to do their eulogies in first person, to write them in first person. And that is so powerful because if you if you've had somebody have their physical body die and then you're sitting with a group of people and somebody's reading their words, address like there's no, they're still, they're right there. It, they're right there. And also, I think even our best of best friends will say things about us that maybe we would want to say something a little different from our voice. And then you can address the crowd. So there's a huge movement in many things of that nature. And I am all about it. It is so, it's so healthy and so beautiful. So yes to that. Okay, terrific. Every family, to your point about friends saying things that maybe the person who's passed would have phrased a little differently. Everybody remembers the end of life of their loved ones in a different way. And I know that you encourage families to say they're sorry, to make amends, to do what needs to be due to tie up those loose ends. And certainly I've worked with many, many families. One guy in particular comes to mind. They lived, he lived in Atlanta and he called me and he said, I'm dying. I have a few days to live. I want to be sure that I've done everything that I need to do before I leave. And I thought that was just extraordinary. 
And so I was helping him with that. And one of the things that came into my head from spirit was he that he wanted to make amends with his sister. He wanted to see his sister. So I asked his wife, I said, he wants to see his sister. Does she live close by? Can you bring her over or ask her to stop by? And she said, no, she lives in Australia. I said, well, get her on the Zoom or get her on a FaceTime or something like that. And there was unfinished business there that needed to be handled. I have another friend who was losing her husband and the husband was in a coma and he kept telling me, I need her to forgive me. I didn't know what all the forgiveness thing was. It was none of my business, but his spirit kept telling me telepathically, I need her to forgive me before I go. How much of that do you run into and how do you how do you lead and counsel families and the person at the end of their lives to be able to satisfy that need that arises. So the first thing, and Julie, this is really important because it's everyone's stuff bubbles up at the end. So this is a very natural, organic part of the end of life. And so what I take away from this is not to wait to those moments to say, I'm sorry, to try and find the peace and all that. So that's just learning for, for everyone listening for today. But getting things stable in that um, in that initial period where somebody's pain is under control and so where they can start to feel stable and good to have these conversations because now we're able to kind of sit bedside talk about no judgment is there something that you would like to talk about or anything that's burdening your heart because absolutely the emotional things are going to start to come up and it's fascinating because where we protect ourselves as human beings in journeys with things that have been painful, we are able to pack them away, tuck them away energetically and put them where they're not even in our awareness, right? But at the end of life, sometimes that actually manifests into illness um, if we haven't dealt with it. But at the end of life, it's, it's, it's coming up and it wants to be transmuted. And so there's an organic thing that happens that people start wanting to talk with a trusted loved one or have those conversations and then when we can approach and create a space of, of unconditional love for that end of life person, it really fosters them to be able to have conversations or broach things that they might not have been able to. Also, it's the last opportunity. So we really want to share with the family members that if there's something that you want to say, we don't know how long this time period is going to last. Don't wait. Don't think that you have because it can be the great, it, and it is, it's the greatest gift that I've seen. And, you know, I've seen a, a son who's 46 years old, six foot five, man, run out of the, his father's room with tears streaming saying, dad just told me he loved me. And so obviously that, you know, that father and son, they hadn't had that relationship for a very long time and that's going to serve him forever, but let's not wait for those moments. So just allowing and encouraging people to share. I give alone time. I think it's very important to create alone time with individuals because there's not going to be a heart to heart with everyone sitting around the bed. So making sure about that and just encouraging them to capitalize on that window of opportunity because it is a window. Now, what I will say, and you understand this, is that when that person actually has their end of life, that window is not shut and gone. We can still we can still offer forgiveness and say, I'm sorry, communicate. But a lot of people don't know that. Um, and they think that it has to be rectified with them looking at me and hearing me and vice versa. 
And I think that there's also such a beauty in that moment to be able to do that as well. But I don't want them to think that the moment's lost if they don't have that opportunity for whatever. Oh, I agree. I just talked to a client this morning who lost her brother and she was boohooing hard. She was crying hard. And I talked to people often who were communicating with their deceased loved one. And they, I had a woman yesterday ask me if her husband was mad at her. I said, no, he wasn't mad at you at all. And he said, sell the house and get your, get the, get a plumber in to fix the plumbing before you list the house. And she squealed. And I said, what? She said, well, I just had a friend over last night because we have a leak in the yard. I think I have a water main leak. I said, well, there you go. And he was telling her, get a plumber in. And there is so much grief and so much guilt that I see that happens. This is what is really troubling is that there's so much traumatic grief today and it's it's worldwide and it's directly related that we don't talk about end of life. And I have people again, because I do those educational pieces, sharing about how they'll never forgive themselves for not being at the bedside when their mother took her last breath. I stepped out of the room for five minutes to get a cup of coffee and she died and I'll never forgive myself. And I'm like, that is exactly how she wanted it. It was a gift to you. It opens up this whole bigger picture. But there are people that are holding on to such pain because we don't talk about this very common, beautiful, normal, sacred experience. But again, when we do, it opens up that higher perspective. So not only will you not feel pain that you stepped out of the room, you're like, wait a minute, she was in a sleeping coma and she knew I left the room now because her her energy, your consciousness is always going to be living and existing. So wow. But we're not, we don't have that privy to us. And people are really, really suffering because of it. Right. And it's been my experience too, Suzanne, that we all decide when we go, where we go, how we go, who's with us or not when we go and what the circumstances are that surround that. And you just mentioned how Mm -hmm. medical providers, hospice workers, doulas, funeral directors, everybody, pastors, they have endless stories about Everybody was sitting with grandma and Aunt Susie was on duty and she left the room to get a cup of coffee and grandma slipped away when Aunt Susie was out of the room. Well, grandma planned that. Of course, because we have all these. And I know when you were on the floor in the hospital, you probably most likely had patients that were dying and you thought they're going to go any minute and they're waiting for a child to arrive from some other state, the child walks in as there an hour and then the person leaves. I mean, it's obvious. What just get there. And when you shared that, when I was on the oncology unit, we had a 33-year-old young man who was dying and it was Easter Sunday and his daughter lived, um, she was about six years old and she lived, you know, maybe one state away. They just got there. She had this white dress on. She looked so beautiful. They walked into his hospital room and I heard, the woman screaming, uh, get the baby out, get the baby out. And we all went running down there and I walked through that hospital room. It literally looked like she, this little girl was above the, the ground, floating in all this white out of the room, like getting ushered out of the room. And he died right when they got there, like two minutes after. And you're right, they, they will wait. They will wait for you to leave the room or they'll wait for a date or something to be resolved. I mean, we have control over the time we die. What is that telling us on the bigger picture? This mm-hmm. this is magical. This is amazing. Yes. And so what are we to do here today? What is my purpose? 
because I think that's really what we we want to find out, you know. And it's really about love. It's about giving love, receiving love, and just being love, holding that vibration of love for one another. Absolutely. There's one gentleman that comes to mind. He was driving from Birmingham, where I am, and was going to North Carolina, where his dad was dying. And he was on his last, you know, I mean, they didn't think he'd make it. And so I'm on the phone with my buddy, Bill, and and I'm talking to his dad. So we have like a intergalactic spiritual conference call going on. I said, Bill's on the way. If you can hang on, hang on, hang on. He got there. He died within 10 minutes. Yep. I mean, the stories are endless. endless. I'm sure that you and I can do that. Okay, let's get to the death doula part. Let's do it. Talk to us about what's the medical team? What is a death doula? What does a death doula do that hospice does or does not do? Right. And how do they interact with the physician or whoever's the one that's really controlling it from a medical standpoint? What do we need a death doula and a hospice agency? How does this work? Okay. So here's what happens. So we have hospice, which is the end of life provider, model of care, beautiful model of care. Because of the way that the reimbursement structured it is that now it's fragmented. And as a hospice nurse, I was in a patient's home for one hour, once a week. I was assessing the patient. They had the medications prescribed. And the model is that I'm supposed to teach the loved ones how to care for that dying person in their home when they're petrified with one hour, once a week. It doesn't work. So the difference between, so what I what I did was I went to my, this is when I was a hospice nurse, I went to my CEO of hospice and I said, people are having terrible end of lives. It's not, it's not going well. I'm not there enough. He's like, that's all we can do. We can't be there more. And I was like, but that's not enough. It's not working. So I came up with a training based on all my bedside experience where I could, again, identify three distinct phases of end of life and interventions to use in each one of the phases. And if I'm supposed to teach the family how to care for the dying loved one with fears upon them, their dying loved ones right right there in front of them, and it's almost impossible to get to them, what about this training being taught before we ever get there? Okay, so start to finish. So I came to my CEO and he said, this training's amazing. He said, it's great. He goes, we can't use it. I said, why? He said, because we won't get reimbursed for it. So I finally said, what is the reimbursement? And he said, it's $166 a day. Hospice is paid on the daily per diem. I said, keep your money. I said, I'm going to go. I'll teach it at the local library. I'll offer it for free. And whoever wants to come, come. And guess what happened? Just th- there wasn't a seat left. And then I put it online. And I still, to this day, that's over 15 years ago. To this day, I still teach that once a month. It's 90 minutes in its completion. I'm on there answering live questions. That's usually another 90 minutes. We have people from all over the world. That's how doula givers started. And that's how we are today. We have thousands of people a month come to that training. This training has worked so well for people in every setting, which is amazing. So then people said, I could be a doula, like a birthing. I could be like that doula for a professional doula. And I thought, okay, perfect. So I built out that training. So now you have the end of life care team. Hospice is the medical manager. They are responsible. They assess the patient. They do the medications, but they don't have the time. So I said, if I could train people that are not held to that reimbursement, not having to see 20 patients and be there for just an hour, but give them all the knowledge, all the training, have them be in a category of a holistic non-medical professional, they could be the eyes and ears for the hospice team. They can sit with that family, hold the space for them like a birthing doula for the duration, 
and alert the hospice team at any change in that patient's presentation along the end of life um, journey. And it's working beautifully. So you think of hospice as the medical manager and doula givers as the holistic non-medical, as the eyes and ears for the hospice team, also, of course, supporting the patient and the loved ones. It makes the complete whole. It's the answer to a fragmented medical system. Can anybody be a doula or do you have to be a nurse or a therapist or a medical provider in the medical provider industry? So you do not need a medical background. You do need a calling. This has to speak to your heart. It is the hardest work I've ever done. It's the most rewarding work. It picks you. People who are called to this space know that they're called to this space. It's not something where you're going through your choices of things you can do and you say, oh, maybe I try that. No. This has to be, I feel this, I want to, I'm, I'm comfortable in this space and I'm going to show up for that and then I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. Yeah. Are doulas licensed? Is there some kind of, we, we love licenses and regulations and, 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 you know, parameters, okay, the accreditation of colleges and all that kind of stuff. Is there something like that for doulas? There isn't. So it's a non-government licensure and that's a great thing. Why? because the time is the most important role that the doula has with no limitations. That being said, there is a danger with it not being a structured licensure because you could have death doula training A, death doula training B, death doula training C. You can have people even saying I'm a death doula with no training, which is obviously very unethical and and horrible. So we have a very, very thorough education system within Doula Givers Institute. And we give that graduate that certificate of proficiency that they've passed everything. And I think that now people are very, very savvy to know when people are walking through the door with said education from a certain place, they can entrust that that person knows what they're doing. Um, But it should not be a government licensure. And I'll tell you why, because that's what's literally, Julie, ruined our whole medical system is that People who went into that as empaths wanting to help found themselves in one of the worst positions because they're literally seeing so many patients. Everyone's mad at them. They're stressed out. Where's the care? Where's the ability? And, and you know, at the end of the day, our presence is the best medicine we have to give one another, our true presence. So we really need these non-medical holistic practitioners. Sounds to me like you do once a month a training just for people that don't want to do this as a career. And then you have a whole curriculum and training for people who do want to do become a death doula as a career. Am I understanding that right? So I'm always I'm always asking, what can I do to show up to be of the highest service in this space that's so vast at end of life? And so you are correct. So I have an introductory level one for everyone, for families, but we just literally put together the Confident Caregiver course for families. It is so thorough. It has its own advanced directive. It has the training of the family in the three phases, medications, It has all of the choices for disposition, living wakes, uh, aquamations, the water cremations. And this is really for families so that they can have that complete training to be confident to take care of someone they love and are not dependent on trying to piece it together, or even if a doula is available or not, because they're just not everywhere. Um, we've really got to get the the teaching back and the empowerment back into families once again, but in its complete totality. So starting with the discussion, putting those choices together, then when we're during it, so it's it's structured as before, during, and after, 
And like you said, options for life celebrations, memorials, and all the great options that are available now, it's an amazing course. So right, we have professional and then we have for families as well. And I don't know that people are going to get all of those options when they go to see a funeral director. They're going to get cremation and regular burial, I would imagine. Am I assuming that correctly? I think you're assuming that correctly, yes. So they need to, okay. know, they need to know about different options and then know where to access them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and nothing wrong with funeral directors. I mean, certainly they they are amazing people and God bless them for the work they do, but it's a business. Absolutely. So. Here's the thing. I don't ever tell anyone what they should choose, but I want them to make empowered, subjective decisions for them. And you can give them all this this information. And we go back to when people have that end of life diagnosis given to them, they feel like, again, the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's no more I can do for you. There is so much that they have control over decision making. And we need to give that back into it because that changes, again, the whole experience. I agree. How expensive are death doulas? And is it private pay? I'm assuming it is. It's not covered under insurance. So what kind of financial reimbursement do they get from the families? I have to assume that it may be different in different parts of the world or even different parts of the country. So it so it is a private pay because it's not reimbursed in the insurance structure, which is a great thing or else we wouldn't have the time. And it's very much similar to the companion care companies like Visiting Angels and Home Instead. I mean, the, and Comfort Keepers, these are all private pay. Our personal doulas get anywhere from $20 an hour to $85 an hour, depending on where they geographically are located. Um, and so $20 is usually in a rural area. Um, 85 was in West Palm Beach at nighttime. Somebody was getting that. But we do have a beautiful business structure where we will teach the doula giver to pick an hourly rate, put packages of hours together that bring down the rate, and then also to have a sliding scale. So we the goal is to provide service to families. And we have a beautiful model of our business model. We're hopefully, and again, knock on wood, it's never been the case that we've had to ever turn any way that there's a way to provide service within the means of that family and that and that person. Um, so that's the range of it. And I have heard, I think People Magazine did a story, yes, in April with a doula giver, not from our organization that charges $100 an hour. So it does have that range. But again, everything I think is, it's about what's being provided here. And so there's a lot of room for services to be provided even when somebody maybe doesn't have Uh, that hourly rate that we can work with, for sure. Are you finding that the hospice agencies and or hospitals or physicians offices are recommending death doulas or have we not gotten to that point yet? Well, hospices, I can't say that they're necessarily recommending yet. Hospitals, yes. So I have been called from discharge social workers that are discharging people out of catering or different places and they need a doula, they're going home. And I remember years ago going to Sloan Kettering and this doctor, he was probably in his 40s. He was just wonderful. And he said, this is at the very beginning of of what we were doing. He said, if you can, he goes, if you can really do this, if you can really do what you say you're going to do, we would absolutely love it because we know we're sending people home and they're not okay that they don't have the support. So hospice is my goal initially when this first was started in my hospice that I worked for, we had a list of what we called home health aides. And this list was names of home health aides that were not employees of hospice, but we could give families and say, we've heard that, so no liability here, but we've heard 
that this list here that they know how to do end of life, right? So the, remove the liability. My my hope and still is that hospice will have a list of the doula givers, the death doulas, and give that list. So we're not working for hospice, but we're supporting that end of life family. But what's happened now is a lot of hospices are bringing on doulas because it's been so embraced by families. Families will call hospices and say, do you have death doulas that, you know, and so they are getting really on board with that. So they're putting a death doula within their organization, but the death doula seems to have a lot of patience. So we have to be very careful that it does not get watered down and change the intention of the real value of us guiding that one family, that one patient for the duration. So yes, they are referring. We still have a little ways to go to get hospices to that place. Well, they'll take that piece of paper and say, here's your list. They're not remove the liability. Here are the death doulas. We've heard they're great. Um, because that would be that would be amazing. That would be really well. One more general question, and then and then we'll we'll conclude here. What's the range of time that a death doula is going to spend with a family? Are they going to be there a few hours a day? Are they? Can you have multiple death doulas that do shifts? Like somebody works a twelve-hour shift or an eight-hour shift, or how does that work? So it really depends on the need of the family and it and it's a varied. Um, so what I will say that usually what happens is that the doula will pick up more hours with that family as that journey progresses, where the family wants you there, especially a lot towards the end when that person's dying. That makes total sense. Um, what I'll say about the shifts, we can do shifts and we will introduce if families do want 24-hour care or those really long hours, but you really want to have a relationship with the doula and that family and that person. So the continuity, because the doula giver is amazing to help before that person, their end of life journey, when they're actively dying at the time of death and then after with grief and bereavement, the continuity of that is so helpful to that family with that relationship, that trust that's there. So it's usually one person, but again, if we do have those families and occasionally you do that want 24 hour care, you will have to, but I always say introduce that next doula early so it's not just somebody coming in when somebody's actively dying for the first time trying to build that trust. Um, so it really does vary on the needs of the family. They usually, again, always will want you there more as that patient's declining and getting closer to the time of death. Yeah. Okay. You are extraordinary, my girl. I I am just so impressed and grateful for you that you walk the planet and how many people you're helping. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm like weepy, just, just telling you how I think what a gift you are to the world. I just, it's going to make me weepy here. I'm getting teary just telling you that. Thank you. So how can people find you? How can they learn more about you and your work? We have so many amazing things that we do as a global community and to support this conversation is to please come to doulagivers.com. So it's D-O-U-L-A-G-I-V-E-R-S.com. Come join me in one of my live monthly discussion groups. Take the free training. I am on their live. We have so many resources like guides that are free for self-care, for end of life. There's almost everything. Come into the space, ask questions. We are here for you um, because this is, again, 80 to 90% of a positive end of life 
is planning ahead. And it also teaches us how to live. And so hopefully at doulagivers.com, there's something for everyone to step into this space. And we're in this together. So we open arms, invite you in to ask questions and to get advice and just to, to be seen and heard in this space. And what's doula mean? It's Greek, right? Isn't it a Greek word? Yeah. So doula is usually, if you know it at all, it's associated with the birthing of babies. It's a Greek word in origin that means non-medical person that gives physical, emotional, and spiritual support to someone else. And I always put the connection immediately to the similarities of helping somebody leave this world as coming in. So I said doula. And then I said doula giver. Let's have that be our name. And here we are. I had a client yesterday who had lost her husband eight weeks ago, and he died on her birthday. And she was so distraught. And she said, of all the days for him to die, and we were talking to his spirit. And he said, well, I wanted you to remember that that was my heavenly birthday. And you'll remember Christmas, but you're going to remember your birthday more than any other day. And I wanted to share a birthday with you. And oh my gosh. I love that, Julie. And one thing I, I often will pose to people is that what if we have this thing all wrong? What if we have death completely wrong? What in, instead of it being this overwhelming feeling of grief and sadness, it's a celebration of a graduation of this person that they made it, they did it, and we will see you again. And you are around. How amazing. Yeah. 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 And add the glorious component. That's what my work and my books do is it adds the glorious component to what normally is a heart-wrenching experience and helps people in the grieving process and let go. And then once once their loved one's gone, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Well, Thank you for all you do for the world. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. And everybody's sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, and Florida also, where Thank Suzanne you. is. And everyone, it was wonderful. Hi, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.